top of the morning to ya. Happy St. Patrick's Day, and thank you for joining me on another episode of Rotten to the Core. I'm your host, Josh Waters, and today is one of my favorite holidays. No, not for the green beer. I only drink red, white, or sometimes clear. I love this holiday because it reminds me of part of my heritage and Grandma's stories of her family's Irish past. Ever since I was a wee lad, I've been fascinated by the history, folklore, music, and images of Ireland and its glorious people. Don't get me started on their beautiful accents, ugh, like music to my ears. Speaking of music, I will admit to being fond of Irish tunes, my favorite being Celtic women who sound like absolute angels. You will have to excuse me if I butcher the pronunciation of any of the villages or people I'll mention. Names are not a strength of mine. I may also use a little bit of an accent. It helps me pronounce them better. Well, while researching this episode, I was thrilled when I noticed it came out on St. Patrick's Day. So, I figured I'd try to find a rotten person from Ireland to cover. And I believe I found the perfect man. Here's referred by Lord George Bingham, 3rd Earl of Lucan, and he was a landlord in Ireland in the mid-1800s during the famine. Now, a lord in Ireland is just a title given to someone who owns land in the country. Nowadays, anyone can purchase a square foot of land and receive a title certificate to display at your home or office. Lord Lucan had owned around 15,000 or more acres of land across Ireland, and was very influential in the comings and goings of Irish peasants at the time. Some history on the Irish potato famine, for those of you who don't know much about it, it was also known as the Great Hunger and began in 1845. It was caused by a fungus-like organism that completely obliterated the potato crops in the country. The disease appeared first in the form of small brown spots on the leaves. The area spread, the foliage withered, and the stem snapped off. In two or three days, all was over, and the fields were covered with blackening plants, giving off a sickening smell of decay. If you've ever smelled a rotten potato, then you can imagine how horrible fields of them would smell. The potato tubers, if lifted, were hard, withered, and the size of walnuts, like my ex. The blight would cause up to half of the potato crop to perish the first year, and three-quarters of the produce to expire the following seven years. It led to mass starvation, the deaths of nearly one million Irish citizens, and at least another one million being forced to leave the country as refugees. On December 17, 1846, a Mr. O'Brien wrote a letter to the Duke of Wellington describing a visit to Skibbereen. He found the village deserted, but on entering one of the cabins, he discovered six famished and ghastly skeletons, to all appearance dead, huddled in a corner, their soul covering what seemed to be a ragged horse cloth, and their wretched legs were hanging about, naked above the knees. I approached in horror and found by a low moaning that they were alive. They were in fever, four children, a woman, and at once what been a man. In a few minutes I was surrounded by at least two hundred of such phantoms, such frightful specters as no words can describe. 
By far, the greater number were delirious either from famine or fever. Within 500 yards of the cavalry station at Skibbereen, the dispensary doctor found seven wretches lying, unable to move under the same cloak. One had been dead many hours, still the others were unable to move, either themselves or the corpse. Now the blight started in Mexico and soon traveled across the globe. Ireland was struck worse because it grew mostly just potatoes. Other countries, such as the United States, didn't suffer as much due to increasing several different types of crops. It wouldn't be until 1852 that the crops would recover, but the damage had already been done. There were so many refugees that the countries that they did flee to only met them with discrimination and, in some cases, violence. If you've ever heard of businesses at the time posting, no Irish need apply signs, it was directly because of the large number of people that came from the country seeking work once they relocated. This is where really a lot of my ancestors came here and eventually settled in the Appalachian Mountains, finding work in the various coal mines and building a new home among the quiet and secluded hills and hollers of Tennessee and Kentucky. Historians are still unsure whether the role of the British government in the famine and aftermath was out of malice or incompetence. But in 1997, the Prime Minister at the time, Tony Blair, did issue a formal apology to Ireland for the UK government's handling of the crisis. In the United States, the Great Hunger Museum in Hamden, Connecticut, has been built as a resource for those seeking information on the potato famine and its impact and researchers hoping to explore the event and its aftermath. Well, now where does Lord Lucan come and play in all this? As I mentioned earlier, he was a ruthless landlord during the Great Hunger, who would evict thousands of his Irish tenants and rent his lands to wealthy ranchers. Those ranchers would then use the land to produce other crops and goods, such as dairy, which sounds like it would help the poor Irish suffering, but they instead would sell those goods to other countries, completely ignoring the starvation, suffering, and death around them. Born the first son to Richard Bingham, the second Earl of Lucan, and heir to the title, he would study at Westminster School, but would leave formal education to pursue a career in the military. Although he never saw active duty, he was eventually promoted to field marshal before retirement in 1887. I believe this was referred to as purchase of commissions, which was paying to increase your position in the army instead of being promoted on merit or seniority. Often wealthy fathers would do this to give their, let's say, ungifted sons an honorable career. They were even paying more to ensure that their sons would not participate in any act of battle. Instead, they would be a safe distance away and comfort as sons from peasant families fought and died for their wars. This man raised in the arms of luxury really wouldn't have a sense of what the lives and needs of peasant families would actually desire to thrive. Instead, he was driven by the bottom dollar and the prestige he could bring to himself, his family name, and his position. In poverty-stricken Mayo, the famine was at its most severe. Starving and dying, the people came into Castlebar and roamed the streets begging for food. 
William Forrester, the Quaker who made his headquarters at Castlebar, particularly remembered the children with their death-like faces and drumstick arms that seemed ready to snap. It was expected when in the front door of a house was open in the morning to find leaning against it the corpse of some victim who had sunk to rest at the doorstep and died during the night. Dead bodies laid by the roadside leading into Castlebar. Men and women who had fallen by the wayside were seen struggling in vain to rise until, with a low moan, they collapsed in death. While in remote hamlets, unknown to the outside world, every soul was found to have perished. The people had become too weak to fight death. To the Earl of Lucan, famine horrors were only demonstration of the urgent necessity of clearing the land. The land could not support the people, could never help the people, so the people must go. He did not consider it his responsibility any more than the English government thought it was their responsibility to arrange how the people should go and where. He was getting nothing from his estates. All his rents and a great deal more were being put back into the land. He was doing his share and more than his share to bolster up a hopelessly false economy. To the Earl of Lucan, famine horrors were only demonstrations of the urgent necessity of clearing the land. The land could not support the people, could never help the people, so the people must go. He did not consider it his responsibility any more than the English government thought it was their responsibility to arrange how people should go and to where. He was getting nothing from his estates, all his rents and a great deal more were being put back into the land. He was doing his share, and more than his share, he believed, to bolster up a hopelessly false economy, to pour out money badly needed to improve the land. A large part of the population of Ireland must disappear. Evictions became common in the Earl of Lucan's estates. 10,000 people were ejected from the neighborhood of Ballinrobe, and 15,000 acres were cleared and put in charge of Scotsmen. A relieving officer told Sir Francis Head, an English observer, that the destitution caused by Lord Lucan was immense, pointing to an eminent enclosed by a capital wall and in a good state of cultivation, he said, this was a densely populated hill called Stabal. All the houses were thrown down. Several populous villages about Castlebar completely disappeared. Farms being established on the sites. Behind Castlebar House, the Earl of Lucan established a large dairy farm. The yard and buildings of this farm which covered three acres, were cleared in the town of Castlebar itself. Whole streets were demolished, and the stones from the walls were used to build barns and boundary walls. Terror seized Mayo. The people, ignorant, starving, and terrified, hung desperately to the land. Turned out of their cabins, they took refuge with neighbors or crept back in the night and hid in ditches. It was necessary to forbid any tenant to receive the evicted on pain of being evicted themselves. It was essential to drive them out of the ditches. Finally, it was necessary to organize gangs known as crowbar brigades to pull down cabins over the heads of people who refused to leave them. 
The Bishop of Meath saw a house being pulled down over the heads of people dying of cholera. A winnowing sheet was placed over their bodies as they lay on the ground, and the cabin was demolished over their heads. He administered the sacrament for the dying in the open air and rain. Sick and aged, little children and pregnant women were alike thrust forth into the cold snows of winter, writes Josephine Butler. For the winters of 1846 and 1847 were exceptionally severe, and to prevent their return, their cabins were leveled to the ground. The few remaining tenants were forbidden to receive the outcasts. The majority, rendered penniless by the years of famine, wandered about the roads and bogs till they found refuge in the workhouse or the grave. Insults and curses were hurled at the Earl of Lucan as village after village was blotted out. He was called the Exterminator. It was said that he regarded his tenants as vermin to be cleared off of his land. But he held relentlessly to his view. There was only one solution for Ireland. A large part of the population must disappear. Meanwhile, in London, the government became seriously disturbed. The number of persons on relief was increasing with terrifying speed. By January 1847, half a million men were employed on relief work on the roads, and more than two million were receiving food and each day added new tens of thousands. There was no end to the helpless, starving multitudes of Ireland. Moreover, the relief works were unsatisfactory for a variety of reasons. Persons not entitled to relief were receiving it. The attraction of wages was so strong that the fields were being deserted for work on the roads and the construction work was so poorly done that the new routes were basically useless. Parliament turned angrily on the Irish landlords. How had they ever allowed the state of Ireland to come about this way? What had they done to prevent or to remedy the disaster? The Irish landlords had come forward with no plan. They had provided the government with no information, and they had assumed no responsibility The miserable hordes perishing on their very doorsteps had been basically ignored. On February 15, 1847, Lord Brougham attacked the Earl of Lucan in the House of Lords. In Mayo, 6,000 processes had been served, 4,000 of which were for rent. The landlord in Mayo had thought it necessary to serve his tenants with a notice to quit during one of the most severe storms that had ever been known amid the pestilence too which followed, as it generally did, in the train of famine. He had turned out these wretched creatures when there was no food in the country and no money to buy it. 6,000 evictions might involve more than 40,000 people as the Irish family consisted of seven persons. What, asked Lord Boehm, was the result of this wholesale clearance? A great flood of Irish paupers had begun to pour across the Irish Channel into Liverpool and Glasgow. At Liverpool in the last five days, 5,200 paupers were landed without any possession of any kind, in an advanced state of starvation and with cholera among them. They did not immigrate because they had no money, and the immigration season did not begin until the end of March or April. 
They came to be fed. Large numbers of these people had come from Mayo. Lord Lucan was highly defensive. Anyone who knew anything about Ireland knew that processes were not evictions. The trouble now was that the people had made themselves heard who knew nothing about Ireland. Processes were actions for recovery of rent usually brought by intermediaries, and he challenged the figure of 6,000. Lord Bowen informed the House that the figure was an official return quoted in the House of Commons. It appeared that a new system of clearing the land was being adopted in Mayo, and that the process now before the courts were novel in Ireland. There had been previously been a right of leaving distress on goods and chattels for rent, but this year in Mayo, there were no goods left, so the person of the debtor was to be attacked. That is, he was to be imprisoned. The husband and father were to be removed, and the wife and children were to be left to fend for themselves. It was usual in Ireland to allow three months' grace for payment of rent, but this year in Mayo, no such period was allowed. The landlords had calculated that these processes would have all the efficiency of evictions, and they had been proved right. The people were distracted by the loss of their potato crop, feared the land would never produce a similar crop again. They were terrified by the evictions all around them. They were starving and in despair. Before the process could be heard, though, people by the thousands abandoned their holdings and field. Yet, when, said Lord Boehm, he connected the poverty now to the ports of England with the legal processes carried out in Mayo, he excited the indignation of this noble friend, and he was told he knew nothing about it. The winter of 1847 was again exceptionally severe, with heavy falls of snow, sleet, and gales of icy wind. But when spring came, a change had taken place. The demolishing machine and the crowbar brigade were no longer needed. The period of mass evictions was over. Thousands had died, thousands had fled, and thousands were still dying and fleeing, and the problem was solved. The people had disappeared. In Mayo, alone, it was estimated that 100,000 acres lay without a single tenant. The harvest of 1848 proved a good harvest, and the famine was over. On November 16, 1849, the Times published a long letter reprinted the next day as a leading article. The letter's writer, the Reverend Sidney Godolphin Osborne, had just traveled through Mayo as the Times correspondent and special commissioner. Lord Lucan was utterly unknown to him, and they did not meet when Sidney Godolphin Osborne was at Castlebar because Lord Lucan happened to be in England. Now, sir, if a landlord is to be found resident, cultivating large tracts of land in the best possible manner, it does appear to me to deserve no little credit. It matters not whether he is popular or an unpopular man. What his creed, what his station, there he is, having weathered so far the storm, always called up by one who, careless of present odium, aims at a given end, however painful the means of its attainment, and halts not until 
he has attained it. Sidney Godolphin Osborne was genuinely a philanthropist, but how little he felt for the Irish people? He was genuinely a liberal, but how little he foresaw. He felt no more responsibility for the fate of Ireland's doomed and wretched masses than the Earl of Lucan. The population of Ireland had to be reduced, that was clear, and as a human man, he felt regret that an unavoidable necessity should also be painful, but he felt no more than that. What happens to the rabbits when the warren is cleared? What happens to the rooks when the trees are cut down? Somehow, somewhere, they disappear, and so must the Irish. No faintest apprehension of the fatal result crossed the minds of the landlords, politicians, and philanthropists. As the coffin ships made their slow voyage across the Atlantic, a journey said by many who had experienced the horrors of the passage of the slave trade, to which they still carried hatreds in their heart. In that new world, there was to grow up a population among whom anger towards England was deep, who, holding into the image of their beloved Ireland, could never forget. Out of all the landlords during the Great Hunger, Lord Lucan stuck out to me the most due to his rottenness of his exceptional heartlessness regarding the condition and lives of not only families he once rented to, but anybody he deemed lesser than himself. He would be promoted in his military career until Field Marshal on June 21, 1887, dying a year later at the age of 88 in London on November 10, 1888, and he was buried in Middlesex. If you would like to stay up to date on our current episodes of Rotten to the Core or have suggestions for ones in the future, please follow and like us on Facebook at It's Rotten to the Core, Instagram at It's Rotten to the Core, Twitter at Rotten in History, or just go to itsrottentothecore.com. I hope you all have a fun and safe rest of your March, and don't forget spring is just in a few days. Thank you for listening and supporting Rotten to the Core. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.